0: When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, for she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately, her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, Who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, "'Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease.'" While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, "'Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further?' But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, but believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping." and they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The Gospel of the Lord. We have two stories today that involve children. Um, The Old Testament reading from Exodus is about uh, being born and midwives, those who help people, uh, babies be born, And in in the gospel, we have the healing of a 12-year-old girl. But I want to go back to the midwives um, because they're so crucial to all children being born, at least in most cultures. Uh, There were always midwives. Before there were doctors, there were midwives. These are the people who help moms when they're ready to have a baby be born. They helped them actually give birth to that baby. And in the story in today's first reading, there was an evil king who wanted to kill some of the babies, all the boy babies. But the Midmah wives stopped the evil king from doing that. And by stopping the evil king, they saved God's people. We are part of God's people because we've been baptized into Jesus' death and resurrection. A couple weeks ago, a baby was baptized here. We've had a number of baptisms lately. We are born, midwives or doctors help us to be born, and then we are reborn. We become members of the church, part of God's people by our being baptized. I want to say something about the sermon series that's beginning today, just an additional comment to what Pastor Keith said. The booklet he mentioned has 16 names, and we're only preaching on 11, and if you want to know what the 11 are, look in the email from this week. The list is in there of what Sundays we're preaching on, which, um, which texts, and uh, which uh, personality from, from the Bible. And then I have to start this sermon with a disclaimer, um, that I'm beginning with a man's perspective on childbirth. And whenever I tell this story, the comment that comes back is, it's all about you, George. So I just have to start with that. We arrived at the hospital at the last minute, just the way my wife, the nurse, planned it. There was no time for a doctor to get there, so a midwife, whom we had never met, uh, took over, but very gently. Now this was our fourth child, so there wasn't uh, a lot of time, you know, waiting to the last minute meant that it really was the last minute. We'd practiced the breathing exercises. We had used them with the previous three births. And so I was expecting that we would do that, the same kind of thing, with, like we did with the previous births. But, but there wasn't time this time, really. But I was much less a spectator in this birth, thanks to the midwife. The baby was coming quickly. So there was no time to move to a more comfortable um, birthing chair or anything. We were just in the labor bed, and the nurse said, well, the midwife said, well, you can't move. Uh, Here, sit behind your wife so she can push against you. And so I did. And I had a role in the birth process that was more than being a coach, as I had been in the previous three I felt included in that birth in a way that I had not been in the previous three and I'm still grateful 30 years later, even if I have to remember that it's not all about me. Today's Exodus story is about midwives, specifically Shipra and Pua. The story has many unusual features, among them that they are named. Midwives named in a biblical story and then that the king speaks to them directly. We can be sure that that was to try to intimidate them into doing what it was that he wanted, which was they were to smother the male Jewish babies as they were being born so that the mothers would not realize that their babies were being murdered. It was passive aggression on the part of the king, the pharaoh, who was trying to hide what he was planning to eliminate the perceived threat of the other, the Hebrew slaves. And he was trying to do it with the cooperation of members of that tribe. You know, there were similar worries about the other, the slaves in the South during the time of slavery here in the United States. And the Jim Crow laws and the current mass incarceration of black males are vestiges of that worry about the other in our society. But here in Exodus, we have the first recorded attempt to stamp out the people of Israel, the Jews. They had been nomads. They had settled in Egypt during a famine. Eventually, they were enslaved because they were perceived as different, more working class. It's a story that seems to be repeated in almost every culture, whether it's the Rohingya people in Myanmar or putting refugee children in cages at our border, or attacking those who appear to be of Asian descent on the streets, or police violence against those who are perceived as being different. That they are named is a sign of Shipra and Puah's importance to the story of the people of Israel. The commentary we received in this booklet here says that uh, this was the first recorded case of civil disobedience. But in our Wednesday worship planning meeting, uh, another member of our team pointed out that really this was passive aggression. It was not civil disobedience because it was not open defiance. It was not out in the open. But passive aggression is often the only weapon that is available to the powerless and that's the only weapon that was available to Shipra and Pua. This story is the lead up to the story of Moses' birth where he's placed in a basket in the Nile to escape the king's plot to kill all the Hebrew male babies. And that story is replicated in Matthew's story of Jesus' birth and Jesus' escape from Herod's plot to kill him as a baby. With any biblical story, the question, the most important question for us is always, where do we fit into this story? Well, we are to be midwives, midwives for the word of God, bearers of the eternal word in Christ. How are we doing? I read recently that for the first time in more than a century, birth rates are declining worldwide. There's lots of speculation about the reasons. Is it the fear of responsibility for of raising children? I can say from experience that raising four is not easy, and uh, I often feel in hindsight that I wasn't paying enough attention You know, once they're into their 30s, they tell you all sorts of things that they didn't tell you about when they were teenagers. And notice they don't even tell you when they're in their 20s. They wait longer. I just learned something this past week that I'd never heard about before. Or is it just a fear of the future? Fifty years ago, There was a lot of talk among young, educated people about the dangers of population explosion. There was, I think there was as much attention to population explosion 50 years ago as there was um, the environment. Both of those things came up about the same time. And as a result of that, a lot of people vowed not to have children. When I was in my last year of seminary, our ethics professor told us of a conversation that he had had two years prior with a group of senior seminarians and their spouses. As they went around the circle, they introduced themselves and talked about their hopes and plans for the future, and it became clear that most of them planned not to have any children. This ethics professor was more than a little upset. He said to them, you are the people who should be having children. You will be able to raise them and to help them become productive members of society. Not everyone can do that, but with your backgrounds, you can do that. I know that it was actually idle talk on the part of most of them. You know, they'd been in academia for eight years and so they had these ideas, but when they got out in the congregations and had jobs and there were people with families, they started having children and swelling the ranks of the next generation, just like everybody else. We're called to be midwives for the word of God today, and that's always with the next generations. And it's always got to take a different form for each generation. One of the frustrations of my entire ministry, and now we're going back to 1974, has been Sunday school. I learned early on that Sunday school actually existed from Rally Day until Christmas. And then after Christmas, almost everyone was gone. They would come for the fall, and they wanted their kids to be in the Sunday school Christmas program. And then once the winter hit, you know, they just didn't show up. And this was in every church I was in, you know, three different churches. And then in 2006, I moved to Appleton, Wisconsin to become the pastor of a congregation that had a very large children's ministry. And I thought, well, maybe it'll be different out there. You know, in Wisconsin, if you're a Lutheran, you can just open the doors and people walk in. It's not like here. So wouldn't you know, same thing. We had Sunday school, Big Attendance for the fall through Christmas and after Christmas it was less than half like a third. well, what I have to say is that my generation effectively killed Sunday school by a combination of treating it as a substitute for worship. you know if kids only go to Sunday school and they don 't go to worship don 't expect that when they're adults they 're going to go to worship they won 't know anything about it but and the other thing was the irregular attendance that I observed already in 1974. But we resisted finding an alternative, and we've raised a generation that knows a few Bible stories and not much else about the Christian tradition. For example, I would say, it always amazed me how few Bible stories the children who appeared for confirmation instruction in seventh grade knew. They know two now. Would you like to guess which two they know? Hmm? Yeah, they know. Well, I'm, uh, how about Old Testament stories? Let's stick to old- Noah's, ark. Noah's Ark. They know that one because if you go into the children's section of any bookstore before Christmas, there will be lots of books about Noah and the Ark and they know one other one? No, not usually. No, the creation story. They know something about the creation story. They know the seven-day creation story. They don't know the story really of Adam and Eve. It used to be, at the beginning of my ministry, they also knew the story of the Exodus. And that was because back in the day, when there were only four or five channels on television, the the uh, movie, The Exodus, was on TV every year before Easter and the kids, since they were at home alone, were watching television and they would see that story, but not anymore. That doesn't happen anymore. I-, I include myself when I say this. We've largely failed as midwives for the word of God for our children because we assume that their upbringing in the faith would be like ours or that it could be like ours but it has not been. I went to church and Sunday school every Sunday. I mean, we didn't ever miss. A big piece of it was because there wasn't anything else to do. (laughs) You know, there were no sports on the weekend. We didn't go on vacation. We didn't go someplace overnight to visit family or friends. All of our family and friends lived within eh, maybe an hour or two well that 's not the life that I lived it 's not the life that my children live. so our lives today are quite different, and our formation of the christian of, in the Christian faith of the next generation has to fit with the lives that we are actually living. We can do better for our grandchildren 's generation than we 've done maybe for our children we 're working on finding new forms for what we used to call Christian education, but is really faith formation. That formation takes place and has always taken place primarily through worship, not Sunday school or confirmation. It's when we read and sing scripture, when we pray for one another and the world in which we live, we're challenged to become the people that God intends us to be by learning, and inhabiting two millennia of Christian tradition for this time and place. Shipra and Pua risk their lives for the survival of God's people. They understood that the future of God's people was literally in their hands. It's not as literally in our hands, but we do have a role to play. We can be just as committed to, to the future into which God calls all of us through baptism into Jesus' death and resurrection, we can be God's people in Christ through the Spirit, midwives for the Word of God today. Amen.